0: Well, good morning. My name is Grant Brown, and I've been attending the Bridge for about three years now. Going on to three years, not quite three years. And uh, it's my privilege this morning to uh, speak to you uh, about God and what He does for us and uh, what He expects of us in return. Let's bow in prayer uh, before we turn to His Word. Heavenly Father, It is with great humility and great um, gratitude that we come into your presence this morning. You have revealed yourself uh, to us as a human race, and you have made a way possible whereby we could be restored to an intimate relationship with yourself, something that we had lost through sin. And this morning, as we look... At the details of how you make that work, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct in all that is said and all that is heard, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you were to look at the history of God's interactions with human beings over the course of history from, uh, yes, (laughs) yes. I I guess I don't need to say anything. The kids know better than I, or at least they remember better than I. So thank you, Bridge Kids, for being with us, and um, we trust that God will guide you and uh, direct your speaker this morning, who is also Grant, by the way. If you were to take a history or a look at the history of how God deals with human beings over the course of revealed history from the time of Adam and Eve, uh, you would find that it could be summarized by thinking of it as a series of tests. Tests in which God reveals something of himself, and then he sets up the human being in a gracious way to respond to him in faith, and for a while the human being does it successfully, and then it sort of seems to die out as the human being has children and grandchildren and that sort of thing, until finally, there's a a total failure of the human being to relate to God on the terms that God has stipulated, and so God brings judgment And then after the judgment, he sets us up again for another encounter. Take the case of Adam and Eve. They were given a good garden in which to live and to carry out God's will. They were to have uh, control over the garden and care for the garden and make it grow. And God would come down every uh, evening and they would walk and talk in the garden together, face to face, and God would say, How's your day? And they would say how their day was. And then that whole relationship was destroyed when Adam and Eve did the one thing God had told them not to do. He would probably end their conversations every day by saying, remember, don't eat the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they'd say, okay. And then you know the story. Satan held out the promise of a higher state of being. You could be like God. And so they fell into temptation, and the relationship, intimacy, was destroyed. God was no longer able, free, to be their friend. He became the one who exacted a penalty from them. They now had to pay the penalty for their sin. Well, God in grace took the life of an animal and used the blood of the animal to atone for their sin and the skin of the animal to cover their nakedness. Abel by faith offered a sacrifice and did so until his brother Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Cain in rage and envy killed his brother. the human race sort of went downhill from there. There were some who carried out the sacrifices and sought to make connection with God, and some who felt that their sin could be forgiven or atoned for, and so they offered the sacrifice because they wanted some kind of a relationship with God, but the perfect one before the fall had been destroyed, and so this was somehow not as good. And Over time, the human race as a whole became so evil that by Genesis chapter 6, you find that God describes the human race as being people whose hearts were only set on evil, whose thoughts and intents were entirely devoted to evil. And so he decided to judge the world but he graciously warned Noah and so Hebrews 11 says by faith Noah being warned by God built an ark and you know the story of the flood and Noah and his family were saved from destruction but the rest of the world the human beings were all destroyed and Noah and his family got a fresh start and for a while that worked but over time that too descended into pride and arrogance until by Genesis 11, Noah's descendants have decided to reach God on their own terms, and so they build a tower. And out of pride and arrogance, they decide that they will get to God. Apparently, God seemed remote to them, God confused their language. And in judgment scattered them all over the all over the face of the earth. And then the nations that resulted from that confusion of language settled into different places, and God graciously chose a man named Abram, who was living in Ur of the Chaldees, and he he brought Abram to a place that Abraham or Abram uh, never never envisioned himself coming to. But by faith, Abraham left his home and followed God to a land he'd never been in. And his descendants followed after God for a while, but then they found themselves in Egypt generations later. They were slaves, and they spent 400 years as slaves, most of those years as slaves in Egypt. till finally God heard their cry and relieved them of the oppression, redeemed them from the Egyptians, and set them on a course to the promised land. But they didn't have the faith to go in the first time around, and so God set one generation to wander in the desert until they died, and then the next generation went in to the promised land under Joshua. And that went fine for a while, but eventually the time of the judges came, and faith had grown cold, and grace was still operative. God still operated in grace toward his people, but their response of faith became cold, and Their desire to sin and be like the nations around them became overwhelming. And so they moved off away from God. That relationship that Adam and Eve had had in the garden was a distant memory. And so it goes until finally God sends the northern kingdom into into exile, or scatters them, really, and uh, he sends the southern kingdom into exile. And for 70 years, they're in Babylon, and they are brought back to Judah, Judea, by God himself, working through Cyrus, the king. And then they come back to the land, and then there's 400 years where there's no real word from God until all of a sudden, something absolutely stupendous happens. God comes to earth in human form, and he lives a perfect life. His name is Jesus. And the night before he's to be killed on the cross, he spends the evening celebrating Passover with his disciples, and uh, he talks to them, and the conversations recorded in John chapters 13 through 17. Chapter 17 is known as the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. In the passage that Adam unpacked for us last week, we find Jesus praying a specific prayer that uh, has to do with his disciples. Uh, At the beginning of the prayer, he's asking God to give him the glory back that he had with God before the foundation of the earth. But as he gets to the end of the prayer, he widens his scope and he wants God to do something, his Father to do something for his disciples. And by extension for all of the people who will trust in him as a result of their message. Four times in this passage, he asks that the disciples would be one. Let's look at John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Jesus is praying to his father as if the disciples aren't really in the room, but he wants them to hear what he's saying. ever talk to somebody as if they weren't in the room? Well, Jesus is. My prayer, he says, is not for them alone, my disciples in this room. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, number one mention of them, all of them may be one Father, What does he mean by one? All of them that will eventually hear the message and believe, all of them will be one. To what degree is he expecting God to create oneness? Well, here it is. Just as you are in me and I am in you. He's asking God to create a oneness for people who will put their trust in Jesus, to create a oneness for them that is on the same plane and the same level as the oneness that he enjoys with his Father. The same degree of intensity and quality that the Trinity enjoys, Jesus is asking that God would make his, those who believe in him one. And then the second mention of them, may they... Not only be one among themselves, but also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So may they be one among themselves, and may they be one in us. Third mention of them. I have given them the glory that you gave me what glory was that i think this is the glory of the holy spirit that that births the relationship between us and god when we put our trust in him and believe god May they, I've given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us one. Us in him, we in, uh, us in him and he in us. Fourth mention of them. I in them and you in me. So the son's in the believer, the father's in the son. It's a participation in the whole Godhead. You see. I in them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. This unity is to demonstrate to the whole world that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. I, I'll try and illustrate this, and it'll probably, all analogies break down, so this probably will be no exception. But... When I go swimming, I've gone back to swimming on a fairly regular basis. When I go swimming, I'm in the water. The water's all around me. I'm immersed in the water. It supports me. It it uh, lets me uh, move and uh, do various things so that I I'm in the water, and I'm moving in the water. And I have a number of goals that i meet when i swim certain number of laps etc etc at the same time as i am in the water my body is made up of tissues that contain water so i'm in the water and water's in me and i think that's a a physical analogy of what God does spiritually for us when we trust in Jesus. He makes us one with himself so that we are in him. At the same time, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that he, God, no less, is in us. It's an amazing concept to be one with each other in this room and one with believers around the world. Altogether, making up the body of Christ, the church. This is a new thing God is doing. In response to Jesus' prayer, and in response to the... It's according to the plan of God from all the ages, but it's always been a mystery up to this point. Paul will say numerous times, in these last, most recent days, God has revealed the mystery that He hadn't told the prophets the people of old. How is God going to accomplish this? How is this going to happen? Well, Paul, Paul talks about it in Romans. And in Romans chapter 6, well, in Romans chapter 5, he talks about how we're justified by faith, and so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have peace hope in the glory of god we rejoice in the hope of the glory of god and then he gets to the end of the chapter and he says where grace where sin abounded grace did much more abound in other words where sin was plentiful grace was more plentiful yet and so the kid that hadn't been listening in the back of the class raises his hand and says so paul if if god gets more glory from, uh, from acting in grace toward sin, shouldn't we sin more so that God will get more glory from exerting more grace? In other words, I love to sin and God loves to forgive it. Well, Paul says, no, if that's your question, you don't understand what I said in chapter 5. Because you who have put your trust in Jesus have been so thoroughly and completely united to Jesus that you're dead to sin. How does that happen? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, spell it out. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase by no means? We are those who have died to sin. Died to sin. And so if we've died to it, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We, therefore buried, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The key is this baptism into Jesus Christ. This is a spirit baptism. This is the one time in our Christian life that the Spirit of God baptizes us, and we are baptized in the Spirit. Not to be confused with filling of the Spirit, which happens many, many times in our life. This is the one time that we are baptized in the Spirit. It's It happens at the same time as the regeneration, or the new birth, which happens at the same time as justification, which happens at the same time as redemption, which happens at the same time as the forgiveness of sins, which happens all together, and we're going to see later in Ephesians that it has to do with our uniting to Christ is so thorough that where He has been raised, we're going to be raised as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. baptism of the Spirit unites us to Christ so that His death becomes our death. And the benefits of His death become beneficial to me. He was made sin, not just sinful. He was made sin, the essence, so that I could be made the righteousness of God the essence of God's character, the great exchange. See, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20, 21. He who knew no sin of his own was made to be sin so that I and you could be made the righteousness of God in Christ and united one with each other, you see. And this... Union extends not just to the people in this room, it extends to all the people who name the name of Jesus Christ around the world. So the people in Afghanistan who come to Christ and there's more risk that they'll be killed by their family members than that they'll ever suffer a trial and imprisonment for leaving the Muslim faith, They're united with you and me. Don't forget that. And by the way, don't forget them. We have a responsibility to one another, not just the ones in Eau Claire in this room, but in China and other countries around the world where Christians are on the line, their lives are on the line for saying that they follow Jesus Christ. In making us alive in Christ, Paul continues in chapter 6 of Romans to to say that this new life renders us dead to sin because when Christ died, he died to sin. He died for sin, and he died to sin. So that sin no longer has any power over me. I've now been delivered from the power... Of sin and the penalty of sin. I will be delivered from the presence of sin when I'm finally, when I pass through the door of death and into real life. So Paul says, and I'm I'm I might be getting a little off track here. I am I'm headed for Ephesians 2, so just keep that in mind. But in order to tell his hearers in Corinth, or the people he knows in Corinth, how this union with Christ works out in their lives, he writes to the Corinthians and he says in chapter 6 that this union with Christ affects the way you conduct yourself sexually. Sexual immorality is not to be practiced. And the fact of the matter was, in, if you read 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, there was gross sexual immorality going on in the church, and the church approved of it and affirmed it. And he says that's not right. By the time he gets to chapter 6, he says this, By his power, God, raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Members of Christ himself. So here he's saying, your bodies are members of Christ. So you have to live consistent with the heavenly reality in your daily life. Your bodies are members of Christ himself. Should I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? uh, Corinth, Corinth had a reputation for lax sexual morals. Lax morals of every kind, I guess. But it was a byword for immorality and corruption. If someone was uh, living a life of gross and willful sin, they might be said to have been Corinthianized. So much was Corinth synonymous with corruption and sin, especially sexual sin. Since it was a seaport town, there were temples to all the gods you could possibly think of and a few you never heard of on the way across this narrow neck of land and sailors would go from one side to the other and sometimes they'd roll the ships across but there were temples lining the whole path and the pagan worship was highly, highly sexualized. Sexual transmission uh, uh, diseases were um, rife in Corinth. Paul says, you're different. You have been united with Christ and your bodies belong to Him. Don't you know that if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one with her in body? The Lord has said, two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Not those constructed temples with pagan worship. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So he writes to the Corinthians and he tells them, this is how your union with Christ works out in your everyday life. In Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm getting to 2, but I'm stopping in Ephesians chapter 1 first. This union is the basis for the spiritual blessings that Paul says are ours. He starts off with chapter 1 and says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he goes through the blessings themselves. And when, he's, when he comes to the end of those blessings, because some come from the Father and some come from the Son, and the final one is the gift of the Holy Spirit who's a down payment on your ultimate redemption, a guarantee that God, who has begun a good work in you, will finish it and take you safely home. Then he begins to pray. And he says this in verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation for three things, I pray. One, that you might know God the Father better. Two, that you might know the hope of being called by him to become his inheritance. God has an inheritance in you and me and every believer in Jesus Christ since the beginning of since the cross till the time of the Gentiles are finished and around the world and three that they might know the incomparably great power toward us which is the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead I was so glad to hear Josh Neal <clears throat> say that he wasn't just excited to hear what I was going to say, he was super excited. See, Paul could have just said the power of God here, <clears throat> but that's not enough. It's not just power, it's great power. And not that's not enough, it seems. <laughs> Paul's afraid that We might confuse great power of God with other great powers, but it's greater than that. It's incomparably great power. There's no power like it. It's hugely above and beyond. That's the third thing he prays for. This power is so great that by it, God raised Jesus from the dead and elevated him to his own right hand in heaven. And with that elevation placed him far above all other powers and authorities. All other powers and authorities is usually thought to mean angelic powers. Fallen angels and unfallen angels represent levels of spiritual power that acts in ways we don't understand. But they have a certain amount of authority. God has raised Jesus far beyond the highest of angelic authority. No power that Paul has left out. There, there is no power that Paul has left out here. Any power that could possibly exist is far inferior to Jesus' restored glory. Glory. God exerted this power and answered Jesus' prayer of John 17. Let's think a little bit about this power. When, when, God, when God acts or conceives of a plan and he executes it with his power, his power is not taxed or strained in any respect. God has power left over after He's done the impossible. We say of God that He is all-powerful or that He has all power. Raising and exalting Jesus did not tax the limits of God's power. We might think a dead person is impossible to raise because death is a power greater than we can cope with and certainly we couldn't do it. But with God... He does both the possible and the impossible equally well and with equal ease. Equally well and with equal ease. This act of God is the start of God bringing all things under the headship of Christ, and he's starting with the church. He's putting the church an organic unity on earth, united to his son as the head of the church in heaven. And this is the first step that God is taking to bring all things in heaven and earth eventually under the headship of Jesus Christ. He's starting with the church, which brings me to Ephesians chapter 2. The first three verses spell out the awful condition of the human race. And Paul says, you, and he's referring to the Ephesians and to any of the other churches to whom this letter to the Ephesians will go because it's a circular letter and it's designed to be read in many churches. And so he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live what? Dead and living. How does that work, Paul? Well, you were dead in your relationship to God. You had no uh, connection with God at all. As far as God was concerned, you were dead, and yet you lived in this world. Death is not the end of existence. Death is a separation. Death is a disconnect. When we die, our soul body, our soul spirit detaches from our body. We're usually so sick that the body can't support the presence of the soul and the spirit anymore, and so the soul spirit goes into the presence of God in The life, uh, if the person is a believer, and to an awful place if the person is not. At the same time, it's a separation from all that is known and loved here. We leave our loved ones, we leave our familiar place, we go to a different place because death is a disconnect. And when Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you were separated and disconnected from God so thoroughly that you had no chance, no hope of getting back into connection with God by yourself. You could do nothing to help yourself any more than a dead person can do anything to raise himself from the dead. And you lived that way. It was kind of a zombie existence. You ever see those zombie movies where the people are walking around, their eyes are sort of empty, and and they're not really living. They're just doing things, and there's no uh, chance of them accomplishing anything significant unless it's to destroy something. And so they walk around, and they're monotonal in their voices, and they're just sort of half alive. Well, the person who is dead in transgressions and sins and yet walking around according to this world is sort of like a zombie. They're only living in the physical plane. They live in the horizontal. There's no vertical connection, you see. You used to live when you followed the ways of this world. You lived in this world, and you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's how it was with you Gentiles who've now become Christians. And the next verse, all of us too, all of us Jews were the same way. You would have thought that maybe we'd be different since we had the word, we had the Covenants and we had the sign of circumcision, the seal of the covenant, etc., etc. We had the prophets, and yet we also lived among them, them being the ways of the world and energized by Satan. We lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Well, only alive in the sense that we follow this world, we relate to this world, only alive in the sense that we are governed by the passions of our flesh, only alive in the sense that we are rebelling against God. And, Paul says, or implies, that we loved it that way. Living in sin, dead to God, loving it. We were all, he says, sons of disobedience and children of wrath. In other words, we deserved Wrath. And as our creator, God would have been within his rights to annihilate the lot of us, but he's not that type. He's living in Rome, Paul is. He can look out his window and he can see idols and images to gods made by humans and and they're impotent, but they're worshipped by humans. Because they're impotent and because they're creations of humans, they're without feelings or emotions for humans. They don't care. None are motivated by grace. They're not motivated by anything. Idols can't be motivated. None are gracious. None are rich in mercy. None are great in love. None have power to live themselves, let alone cause their followers to rise from the dead our terrible, terrible condition, dead in transgressions and sins and loving it. But God, God being rich in mercy and great in love with the love that he directed toward us when he said God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish die eternally, die the second death, not perish but have everlasting life, a life where the soul is connected to God, a life where the person is immersed in Jesus Christ, made one with God, and God inserted in the person. None of the gods that the Romans and Greeks followed had any personality but God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the father of the Lord Jesus Christ being rich in mercy great in love he's lavish in both again like his power His love is without limits. His mercy is without limits. But as long as we were in sin and Christ had not died so that we could be placed into Christ, God was not free to act toward us in mercy. Although he did because he knew what he was going to to do. Dead as we were, separated from him as we were, His power that He used to raise us and Jesus from the dead was never taxed, nor is His mercy and love ever taxed to the limit. He is lavish, overwhelming in all of His characteristics. He makes us alive in Christ, and at the same time, according to Romans 6, dead to sin, renders us dead to sin, remember? We're also dead to the law, Romans 6. And while I'm on the subject of dead, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So I'm dead to the world now. So when God makes us alive, he renders us dead to sin, dead to the law, and dead to the world. no longer stimulated by sin, no longer made to respond to the law, no longer needing to respond to the world. He raises us up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now he's exerted the power to raise Jesus from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he uses that power to raise us up to seat us with Christ in the heavenly realms. You know what it means when a pastor looks at his watch? Not a thing. He raises us up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now we are spiritually with him, Christ, far above all conceivable authority. Jesus' prayer is asking that he be in us and we be in him has been answered Paul says it's answered in this way and to this extent we're so thoroughly united with him that his death is our death and the benefits of his death become ours and God raises us up and seats us with him so that so that in the ages to come In chapter 1, he's referred, Paul has, to this age and the age to come. Now, it seems as if he's going beyond the age to come to the ages to come. Ages upon ages upon ages upon ages. This is eternity. And all through the ages to come, God will have realized His purpose in raising us from the dead and seating us with Christ Christ by virtue of the fact that his glory will be reckoned and amazed at, the glory of his grace, and we'll be walking down the streets of heaven, and an angel will be coming toward us, and the angel will say, oh, Wow, what grace God used! How glorious! is the grace of God that he could take a dead Grant Brown and not only give him new life spiritually, but raise him to a position of authority with Christ. All of this God does so that in the ages to come, we might be demonstrations of the glorious nature of his grace. Two aspects to God's glory. One is his essential glory that John sees in chapter 4 of Revelation when he sees a being seated on the throne and he can't make out any features because the glory of this being is so bright and blazing. The other aspect to God's glory is the glory that His creatures ascribe to Him when we sing songs of worship, when we recognize His wonderful works and we uh, praise Him for all that He has done. In those cases, we're ascribing or declaring His glory. That's the glory that will be in, that Paul has in mind here. The, the, The creatures of God, angelic and human, will ascribe glory, and we as redeemed human beings will be demonstrations of the glory of his grace. Listen, we at the bridge have this in our mission statement. We exist to connect people with God and to help them develop into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning, and Christianity is sort of interesting to you, and maybe it's not. But you're here, you're curious. Or maybe you've been coming for a while, and you're sort of on the verge, and you say, hey, that sounds like something I want. I want to be the person who's connected with God so intimately That my values change and my life is transformed and my sins are forgiven, and God makes a relationship with me. Have I got good news for you? (laughs) Because God offers this to all who will simply reach out and receive it by faith. It's a gift, He's got all the pieces in place. He's ready. He probably wants you to trust him more than you realize and more than you want to trust him. But all you have to do is agree with God that, yeah, God, I am dead in my transgressions and sins. But I don't want to stay there. I'd like the gift of everlasting life. Forgive me. Give me that gift, and I'm trusting you for it. Trusting God, what does that mean? Well, you're trusting the chair you're sitting in to hold you up. You're not exerting any effort to hold yourself off the ground. The chair's doing all the work. And you trust the chair because you've trusted other chairs before, and they've always held you up. You can trust God to be good to his word. And when he saves you and redeems you, he will take you all the way home. So please give serious consideration to your relationship with God this morning. It can become an intimate relationship If you'll simply reach out and ask for it receive it by faith but you gotta want it heavenly father we are ever so grateful for your son who did what we could not do and then gave us you gave us the benefits of his death and the benefits of his life and you have promised You have promised to to take your children through this life, free of the penalty and free of the power of sin, all the way to freedom from the presence of sin, in your presence. We long for a world that is way better than this one. But we need to live in this one until you call us home. Help us to live a life, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.